the book of Isaiah has some of the most crucial prophecies that point to the incarnation of Jesus Christ uh, that were ever written. Uh, we won't be able to read all of them today. I wish we could just go through all of them because they're all amazing. But uh, Isaiah 7 is where you first read that passage quoted in Matthew where it says, The virgin will conceive uh, and shall give birth, and, we will name, and you shall name him Emmanuel which in Matthew talks about that, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, two chapters later, Isaiah 9, which we will talk on for a bit today, we read a child is born. And this child that's going to be born, again, this is a prophecy of what's to come. This child that will be born is going to just ignite a full-blown revolution. It's not going to be like cupcakes and roses and flowers. It's going to be a revolution. He's going to shine light in the places that have only experienced darkness until now. Uh, he's going to increase the joy of nations, is what it says. But then a little bit later, and I'm just starting to put these pieces together a little bit more, in Isaiah 58, uh, we get to this moment that, again, we've talked about this moment before, but he starts to talk about uh, Israel and, and, and kind of us and our response to this. So we know this amazing thing happened with Jesus and how he's coming, but he starts to talk about the people of God and how the people of God are fasting, something we all love to do. We love to fast, right? We love to not eat food, right? And so they're, not, they're fasting, they're not eating food, uh, but this passage, more than any other passage in the Bible, really turns the concept of fasting and why we do it, it turns it on its head. Because what it says is Israel's frustrated because they're frustrated at God. They're mad at God. They're like, God, we're fasting, and you're not doing anything. It doesn't matter that you're, we're fasting. We're fasting, and you're not moving. Nothing is changing, they're like, we're doing the spiritual thing, but the spiritual thing is not happening to us, right? Why aren't you blessing us? It's not happening for us. This isn't working. And so they ask God, they say, God, why? Why isn't it working? We fasted. Why is it that you don't hear our requests? Why is it you don't hear our petitions? We've cut off everything. And God tells them, he says, fasting does no good if you don't help others. He says, if you're not eating, right, like, th th what should that mean? That should mean something. If you, if, think about this, right? Uh, he doesn't say this, but it's, 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 in, it's kind of encapsulated, embodied in the passage. If, you, if you're fasting and you're not eating, what does that mean? That means you now have bread that you're not eating, which means you have bread that you can give to someone else. But they're not giving it away. If you're not eating bread, somebody else is still going hungry and you're going hungry, then what's the point? So what God does tell them is he says, if you fast, but you're still a part of oppressing others, I won't hear you. He says, instead, the fast that I'm looking for is one that, the way he says it is, one that looses the bonds of wickedness, one that works to free those who are oppressed, one that invites the homeless into your home, that's a real tough one for us, and one that clothes the naked. Then it says something that I never noticed before, and I never really quite put this together the way that I, the way that I did this week. It says in verse 8, in 58, it says, Then, and only then, after all that happens, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. It says, then your healing will come, your righteousness will go before uh, you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. After all those things happen. See, the concept of light shining into the world kind of throughout the Bible, most of the time when it's talking about it, it's one of two things. One of the, time, one of the, one of the ways it's often talked about is God's light just shining down on us and making darkness light. But the other way that it talks about often is us shining God's light on the world and making it light, making darkness light. But in both cases, we are not the source of the light. God is the source in both situations. But in one of the situations, the, the people of God, the church, as we would say now, are the carriers of that light, the medium by which the dark places experience light. But in Isaiah, this is God, he's speaking to us, and he says, then, after that, your light will shine forth like the dawn. It'll break forth when you do that. So what this is doing is it's teaching us something very important about who we are supposed to be in the world. Jesus says it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I never connected these two, and maybe it's a small thing, but I, I'm really excited about it. He says, well, you're the light of the world. But then he says, nobody, when they light a lamp, they put it under a basket, 
But then what does it say? It says, no, you, you put it on a stand so that everybody in the room can experience the light. Everybody, which means your friends, your neighbors, your family, and it also means you. So many of us are living our lives hoping that God will shine that amazing bright light on us. He'll bless us. He'll meet all of our needs. I mean, especially at Christmas time when we have a lot of needs, but there's so much anticipation and there's so much hope for what's to come and hope for a miracle. But what this is saying in Isaiah is it says, if you want your light to shine through, you have to shine it on someone other than yourself. The passage then goes on to describe the broken world, and what it will start to look like when the people of God start doing what they're supposed to do and start looking like him. And this is what it says in 58 verse 10. It says, If you pour out yourself for the hungry and you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then here it is again. If you do that, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Is that not what we all want? But look at this. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. One of my favorite Christmas songs is the one that John Lennon wrote. I know some of you are like, you can't talk about John Lennon in church. We're going to talk about John Lennon in church. It's called Happy Christmas, War is Over. Actually, the song's actually called Happy Xmas, War is Over, which of course makes Christians crazy. They hate it because they think that the X means that we're, we're moving Christ from Christmas, which is absolutely not true. In the Greek language, the, the X is actually an abbreviation for Christ. In Greek, this is what Merry Christmas looks like. It's the letter Chi is the X. Uh, and for centuries, this has actually been considered an acceptable representation for Christ. It's not saying we're Xing him out. It's just saying we're just shortening it. It's still Christmas. Dawn can walk you through this. Her and I have talked about it a bunch of times this weekend. Um, perhaps, um, think about like, one way I can explain it to you to maybe help you understand it is like, you know how college, like fraternities, you know how they, they use these Greek these Greek symbols, right? Well, for those of you who are familiar kind of in the Christian world, there's a college ministry called Chi Alpha. Anybody familiar with Chi Alpha? Chi Alpha, um, our church actually supports some of the missionaries on campus of U of M uh, who work with Chi Alpha. Well, this, the phrase Chi Alpha in the Greek, it, it can mean uh, Christians in action or the way they describe it is actually cooler. They describe it as Christ's ambassadors based on 2 Corinthians 5, the passage that we kind of cling to. This is our heart. We're the Christ's ambassadors. So Chi is the letter X, and Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, which could be for action, or it could be for ambassadors, is the way they, they like to say it. Now, this might sound ridiculous to you, but it should help you if you're familiar with this organization, because quite frankly, many of the people with the, the Christmas complaint about the whole Xmas thing, the they're also the ones that are familiar with organizations like this because they're Christian organizations. But I've never ever heard anyone say that Chi Alpha is taking Christ out of Christian. <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that they're taking Christ out of Christ's ambassadors. Why? Because that would not actually be a logical argument. It's clear what they're doing. Their name is consistent with how many college fraternities were named. They're a college ministry. It fits. Don and I, I know this is like, it might seem like a rant, but it makes, it, you're gonna, I think you're going to get it by the end. Don and I were talking to someone about this this weekend, and uh, Don kept trying to explain this to this person, and this person like would not hear her out. Now, Don is a very good communicator. She's very learned. She's very smart. And she's trying to walk him through, like, actually, this is why this is actually kind of what I just explained to you. And it's how we got to Xmas, and he just keeps telling her she's wrong. He's like, no, you're wrong. We're like, could you give us some basis? He said, no, you're just wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> now, let me explain to you the danger and one of the many dangers in this. What happens is this. Christians do this a lot. And, and we, we're, we're a church. We actually want to empower the body of Christ to be, be ambassadors, to actually be people who reach the world. So it's very important we get some of these things right. But what happens is if we think that we are under attack— then what we, we tend to do is, we tend to do one of two things, well, a couple different things. One is we put up a wall and we say, well, I, I can't interact with you because you're saying something different than I believe to be true. 
Or if we engage in a conversation at all, we make sure that we control the conversation and that we have the loudest voice because if anybody's going to change their mind today, it's not going to be me, right? It's going to be, it's going to be them. But what, what happens is you can actually build up an anger against something that really your view of that thing is based on a lie or is based on something that it's not it's not true. Maybe you heard a convincing argument. Maybe somebody just said something. You birthed some anger or rage in you and you're just ready to be raging because we love to rage. It feeds something in you to want to fight for that thing. You might be saying right now, um, you, I say happy Xmas, happy Xmas, and you're saying the preacher's taking God out. You might be in your pew right now saying that. I'm not taking God out. I'm not doing that. He's not doing that. But you're convinced, and for whatever reason, something in us is ready to fight for it because we believe that something that we value is under attack. This happens so much these days with politics and on Facebook and all that. And listen, this seems really innocent, but it becomes incredibly destructive very, very quickly. That's why a lot of people think that Christians are crazy. That's why some of us probably really are a little bit crazy. Listen, to the point that we are willing to lose friends over something we don't even understand. We're willing to lose opportunities to be Christ-like over something we don't even understand. Ultimately, and I know this is going to sound extreme, but there are people who are willing to fight to the death for something they don't even understand. I get it, that sounds extreme, but it's what happens in war. Somebody has to be willing to fight for a cause that they're convinced is right, when in reality it isn't. It's horrible, but it's what Hitler did. So many people, they followed Hitler to their own demise and in the process killed a lot of others because of an idea that, can, that they were convinced of, that he was able to convince them of, and it wasn't true. Now, you might say to me, you're being extreme. You're like, he went away for a few weeks, and they went away, they came back crazy. Like, we probably did come back a little bit crazy, and I'm sorry about that. But what do we call it when people say Xmas? What do we call it when people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas? We call it a war on Christmas. This is real. Honestly. Like, you mean to tell me that when someone says X instead of Christ, that means they're at war with you? When someone says happy holidays, which, by the way, actually means holy day, it is also a reflection of the things that we believe about that day. We even sing songs about it. We sing, oh, holy night. Nobody's out there petitioning and be like, it needs to be, oh, Christmas night. No, oh, holy night Either way, they both send the same message. Something sacred went on. Yet, we believe when someone says, happy holidays, they're at war with us. I didn't make up that phrase. The funniest one to me is the tree one. Like, somebody says, have you gotten your holiday tree? What they're actually saying is, have you gotten your holy day tree yet? But what do we do? Wait, they say that, then we snub our nose in the air and be like, bro, it's a Christmas tree. It's a Christmas tree. Well, actually, I mean, that's kind of would probably be the closest thing you get to a Christmas tree, the cross of Jesus Christ, which means you lay down your rights to actually, for the sake of others. Or you could maybe use a manger, like a tree that got broken into it. Yeah, I don't know, but there's, it can be argued that the tree that you have set up in your house actually has its roots where the Romans would set up trees to worship the god Saturn. The pagans would also decorate their houses with trees during the winter months to add color to them in dreary seasons. I remember the first year that Spencer was here. He's with us, and we're setting up Christmas, and we had all these Christmas trees, and he refused to set it up. And I was like, dude, bro, what are you doing? He's like, I'm not doing it. I'm like, why? He's like, because it's a pagan tradition. I was like, yeah, but bro, Jesus makes all things new. <laughs> it's true. That's where we're going with this. But he's like, dang it, what do I say to that? It's true. I don't think Spencer would refuse to do that anymore. Maybe he would. But he's like, oh, it's a pagan tradition. Actually, if you read the Bible, in 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Kings 16, both of them talk about King Ahaz. And it talks about how King Ahaz, he is not like his father David, who David was righteous. 
Instead, Ahaz actually sacrificed his children. It says that he went to a place called the Valley of Hinnom. Um, the Valley of Hinnom, you read about in Jeremiah. It's, it's, it's an Old Testament image we get of hell. It's this very disturbing place where people would sacrifice their children. And uh, so King Ahaz would actually did that. So he wasn't like his, son, like his father David at all. But one pa- those two passages in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, it actually says that kind of a weird thing that King Ahaz did, kind of his thing, was every time he was under a green tree, he would make a sacrifice. So the biblical view of what may be a Christmas tree is kind of sketchtastic. It's a little bit weird. Now, there's a lot of verses we could say, oh, that's about a Christmas tree or that's about a Christmas tree and make theology out of. We're not trying to do that. I'm not knocking it. We picked up our Christmas tree last Sunday as a family. It was a great time. Brooklyn they had her little uh, the, the, um, candy cane. The kids were excited. We found it. Actually, it almost fell off the roof of our car because uh, you could see they didn't even tie it down. No, uh, this is like right before they tied it down, but they really didn't do much more than this. They put like one little string on this thing and like, bro, is that good? He's like, he's like, oh yeah, it's secure. We had to go from Ann Arbor all the way to our house and we're on the highway and then we have the sunroof thing and Don's like, it's falling. So, so we literally, we literally had to roll the, sun, the sunroof down and we're like holding it like this as, as a, uh, as it really, finally we pull over and we had to go get, we had to, in the back we had these camping straps, from, these hammock straps because we like to hammock, do hammocks, we like to hang those. And so we, and then, and then, and then lounge in them, it's wonderful. Uh, and, and so then we strapped it down a lot better than that dude did. Um, but the kids were freaking out the entire time, it was awesome. But we get Christmas trees and we love to celebrate the occasion of Christmas. Because part of the amazing thing about being a Christian is believing that Jesus Christ makes all things new. Spencer, you better write that down. (laughs) He can redeem what the world meant for evil or even what the pagan world celebrated as good. A bunch of the Proverbs in our Holy Bible originated as pagan literature. Does that make them any less inspired? No. God redeems the broken things and he makes all things new. So don't worry when you see the X. Is it an abbreviation? Yes. Are we Xing out Christ? No, not even a little bit. Maybe people think they're doing that. They're not. And unless you really, really want to fight about something really insignificant that you happen to be wrong about, don't choose that battle this Christmas. Now please, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I've been that guy. I've sat up there and been like, Xmas, you can't say, I've done that. So I, we're trying to learn here. It's not meant to be a guilt to those of you who have done it because I have too. But here's my point, And this is where we're gonna, hopefully going to get in this sermon. Love people. Love them. Be gracious with your words. Be generous and compassionate and show people the love of Christ rather than spending your time insisting that they include him in the way they speak about and write about this day. Is that not what Isaiah says? Let's rebuild the world. Let's fix the broken streets. Let's, see, let's help people who are different from us. And when, when that happens and we actually help them, then that light can shine and it, and it, can, it can do its work. Even if this were an attempt to remove him, You're not going to win those people by complaining to them. We'll win them by living the love of Christ out in such a way that nobody would want to remove him because everywhere his followers go, hope arises and light shine. If we aren't fighting for the sake of others finding Christ, we're fighting the wrong battle. What are we doing? Otherwise, what are we doing? We're fighting for ourselves and for our own rights and uh, our right to say a certain phrase or to be comfortable doing a certain thing. And when we do that, we're we're shining our light on ourselves and we're hoping it's gonna shine through, but you read Isaiah, it won't work. If you want your light to shine, you shine it on others. Now, back to the song. There are many, many reasons that I love this song. I've never actually done this before. I've never actually like, correlated a song with a sermon. And I'm not used to doing this. It's kind of weird. Uh, when, we were, uh, when we were younger in youth group, we'd always have like, these cheesy things like, this is the 24 series in Epic Marathon, the fear factor. I never did anything like that. This is, uh, this is kind of new to me to take something from culture. I don't know. I don't normally do this. I'll probably never do it again. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, there are many reasons that I love this song. Not the least of them being it has a fantastic melody and structure and use of vocals are amazing to invoke just this deep feeling within your spirit. They brought in the Harlem Community Choir, four-year-olds all the way to 12-year-olds. And when their voices start singing out, 
it just kills you. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. As the kids seen in unison, the war is over. The war is over. But the lyrics are so driven by justice in the face of a world that typically makes the holidays about pretending things are a way that they are when in reality they're not that way, to put it nicely. It's a song about a dream world where we can celebrate Christmas without being afraid of what's going to happen the next day or the next year. A dream where a world can exist in which a day could be good for everybody rather than the reality that we live in even today where for some it's the most wonderful time of the year and for others it's a sad, discouraging reminder of the lives that they don't have, the gifts they're not able to provide for their kids. That's why we do Joy to the D. The children who won't talk to them anymore, the job that they were laid off from, the children who went to war and never came home. The father who left one night They never heard from him again. And then the mom who's now left with these four kids in a million questions. Not the least of them being, how do we pay the mortgage now? How do we pay the gas bill? How do we keep the lights on? How do we send the kids to school? Now the song doesn't say all of those things, but the song paints an image in your mind. And those are the types of images that then come to my mind because I am always asking the question, what would we need to do to give a Christmas where our whole community actually felt the benefits of it? Like, those are the types of stories we encounter every day, and we're trying to ask that question. Like, how do we make it a Christmas that can be good for everyone? So just a little bit of history. December 1st is when the song came out. December 1st, 1971. Right as America was in the thick of the Vietnam War. Now, the Vietnam War officially ended in 75, but uh, the, the U.S. was mostly out in, um, I believe it was 73, But according to John Lennon, the war is over now. If you want it. And to me, this is a really, really crucial line. It says, the war is over if you want it. We could say it it like this. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to keep hurting each other. We don't have to fight. We don't have to keep killing each other. The world wasn't created so we could just destroy it. It is a beautiful place with beautiful people. And if we can stop seeing each other as the enemy and begin to see the image of God in everyone, it becomes a whole lot harder to even imagine doing harm to that person or to those people. And I just think about how by 1971, people were so tired of this war. It had been, I mean, for many, uh, people like John Lennon and Yoko Ono, they'd been protesting this for years and years. It had to have been disheartening. The war went for 20 years. And this is a war that, I mean, even the most prominent voices in culture just seemed to fall on deaf, deaf ears. It seemed like nothing anybody would do was making any difference. But the song actually was not the start of their protest. It was actually more the culmination of the protest. See, in their honeymoon... In 1979, they did something very, very bizarre. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, they did what was, they held what was called a bed in. They invited the press to their honeymoon suite in Amsterdam. They had the uh, presidential suite uh, in Amsterdam, and they invited the press there 12 hours a day. And instead of doing what married people, newly married people normally do on their honeymoon, which the press was actually, the, they actually that's what the press thought they were being invited to literally record, which is so weird and disgusting. But, that, but the, the press goes and they get there and they set up their cameras and these guys literally sit there in their pajamas for 12 hours a day and just talk about peace. And they allow the press to record all of it as they have this conversation. Later that year, at Christmas time, they bought billboard space in like 11 or 12 major cities and they posted these billboards that said, War is over, if you want it. Happy Christmas from John and Yoko. This wasn't to promote the song. The song wouldn't come out for two more years. It was put there to invoke thought as you drive home from work and suddenly you think about the world and about Christmas and what what it's supposed to mean. And maybe this wasn't what they were thinking when they did it, but this is what was going on. You think about this day, you think about Christmas, you think about what it means and what it's supposed to mean while facing the reality of the state of the world. And that subtle voice comes inside your head and what does it say? Maybe it doesn't have to be this way. 
The second verse of the song really speaks to me. It goes, so this is Christmas for weak and for strong. It just gets me. I mean, Christmas comes every year for every living person, whether they want it to or not, whether they feel like it or not, whether they believe in it or not, whether they have the strength to face it or not, whether they have the strength to face their family or not, or spend more time or go to another event, whether they have the money to throw at their kids or not. And then line after that, it says, for the rich and the poor ones. And this is what it says. It says, for the rich and the poor ones, the world is so wrong. What's it saying? The world is off balance. There's no balance to this. You know, we talked last week briefly about the Hebrew com- uh, concept of tikkun olam. Uh, we're working on a series in January that we're really, really excited about uh, where we're going to touch on trauma and uh, the things that we deal with that shape the ways that we view the world. We're very excited. Uh, it's going to be a very vulnerable series. It'll be important, I think, for our community. Um, it'll be a much deeper analysis in this concept of tikkun olam. But the idea is we repair the world. That's why we're here. We're here to repair the world. And we want to talk about how that ties into the mission of God. But it has always been our hearts at this church to be a place where people can come together, all people. The rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, people of every race, of every socioeconomic background, artistic ability, people who work blue-collar jobs or white-collar jobs, whatever it might be, people with no jobs. And we'll all bring what we have and enjoy it together in the midst of a world that really, truly is wrong. We can create a sacred space a garden in the center of a Detroit neighborhood, if you will, like we did this, this summer, however you want to look at it, and we'll create something that's not wrong. Just this morning, I was talking to uh, Spencer, James, James and Spencer, about this. There, there was, a, there was a, a, a couple people that we were going to, or there was a guy that we were going to try to find help with a housing situation. Uh, and they go, to our, they go to the meal every single week. They're at the meal, they're at the table, and it's awesome. And then, and then all of a sudden, we, he didn't need our help anymore. And we're like, oh, why don't you need our help? Because, and then we find out that somebody else from that same meal, who is just a person we like, pick up and bring in, and we didn't think anything of, like somebody else had risen up and ended, gotten him a place to stay. And this is just happening because of the culture that we're trying to create. Like that is exactly why we're here and exactly what we're doing. I could not, I was so encouraged by that. That's something that's not wrong. That's what Christmas is all about. It doesn't have to be this way. We can take steps to make it better. It doesn't have to stay this way. And in fact, God is doing something amazing. And when he's finished with this thing, the world will never be the same. Listen, one of the most radical messages in the entire Bible is the message of Christmas and the incarnation of Christ. One of the most political messages in the entire Bible is that of Christmas and the incarnation of Christ. Jesus, he did not come into a world that welcomed him with open arms. And suddenly, because he was there, everything was just peaceful simply because he came. No, when Jesus was born, The world was filled with oppression from the Roman government. They used weapons and armies to take over entire nations. They distributed coins that claimed that Caesar is Lord. And anything that stood in the way of that empire was immediately brought down by any means necessary. And the birth of Jesus Christ was viewed as a threat to that empire. The town he was born in had to hold funerals for every single male child two years of age or under because Herod was so threatened by the fact that this child, who was believed to be the future king of the Jews, was born, that he resorted to genocide in just this feeble attempt to preserve his fleeting throne. Christmas is a war. It's a war to end war. It's a war to end the mindset that power comes by the sword or by the strength of an army. Christmas is the message that the meek will inherit the earth not the violent. It's the message that an empire which ruled the entire world will ultimately be brought down by a baby. Isn't that crazy? That's exactly what it is. Let me, let me give you an example. My, my favorite passage, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, maybe my favorite passage, definitely my favorite Christmas passage, is Isaiah 9. Hands down. It's, it's the most blatant, just in your face. Uh, this thing is going to turn the whole world upside down. Uh, scripture you'll read in the entire book. 
And in it, one of the lines says, the rod of his oppressor has broken. The rod of the oppressor has broken as on the day of Midian. Now basically what this is saying is to, to the Israelites, again, Isaiah 9 is a prophecy, something to look forward to, something to hope in for what is to come. It's before Jesus came. So basically what this passage is saying is, hey, remember Gideon? That guy who had an entire army of over 30,000 men and they were ready to battle? And then God sent the entire army home, except for 300 of them, who he then had face off against the entire Midianite army. And before they went to battle, he told them to lay down all their weapons. And Gideon's army won. Yeah, Christmas, it's going to be kind of like that. Like, could you even imagine reading that in the ancient world? You know the story of Gideon. Very famous story. It's found in Judges 7. One of the most unexplainable battles in history. You, you know the empire uh, in this time, like, they dealt with a lot of empires from Assyria to Babylon to now it would be Rome. And the whole time, you know, they're, they're, they're clinging to these promises. You know the empire that has held you down for quite a while. Now you know how big they are. You know how up against a wall you are. How impossible of an idea of ever winning sounds. Then to be shown this ultimate tangible example of what God will do through this child. Let me give you, uh, let me try to make some sense of this. I hope this makes more sense to you for, um, for kind of what Christmas is. Uh, we've been talking about this a little with our discipleship students. Um, but uh, when, when it comes to the incarnation, the Bible says, uh, I believe it's Colossians, it says that, Jesus Christ is the icon, is what it says. Jesus Christ is the Greek word icon. He's the image of the invisible God. It's, what that means is that Jesus Christ is, he's a flesh and blood demonstration of the love of God. It is, he's the literal flesh and blood. He is literally fully man and he is fully God. So now you, right, because we have this image of him, now when you sit at your house and you're feeling lonely, or you're feeling depressed, you're feeling anxious. You're feeling like no one loves you. You're wondering, how much does God love me? Does he love me at all? Now you have this image to look toward, the cross of Jesus Christ, and that shows you exactly what God is up to in your life. He loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. So now I can say, like, I'm, in, I'm sitting in a place, I'm not doing very well, and all of a sudden I can say, you know what, I know what God is up to in my life because I can see it when I look to the cross. Well, they didn't have the cross to look to yet. That's where this is going in Isaiah. That's what's going on here. When these people who are oppressed and they're marginalized and they're trying to find hope, right? This is before Jesus came. It's a prophecy. It's one of those things the Hebrew people would cling on to through a lot of trying moments that would follow it. And, and as they're trying to find hope in what seems like an impossible circumstance, when the world could not be any more broken and their own lives could not feel any more broken, God points to a miracle in the past that he did on their behalf when all odds were against them. And he did the most upside-down thing imaginable, and it worked. And now he's saying, listen, look, Israel, look to that moment because I'm going to do it all over again, and next time it's going to put that one to shame. And I'm going to do it on behalf of the entire world. And then it says this. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I, I know for me, when I, when, I, when I read that verse, for us a child is born, and, and then I actually read what it said right before that, I begin to realize that Christmas is not just a fluffy story about a baby who people brought gifts and sang songs to and followed a star so they could find him. It was all that, but it was so much more than that. Christmas is the message to the empire that it's not going to last. The war is over. It says, The boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned for fuel for the fire. So, the boots, the uniforms, the things that give us the status to convince yourself you have power, the armor you wear thinking it will protect you when you go into battle. To me, there exists no greater image to explain Christmas than the image of a fire. 
that's being fueled by all the things that the world thinks gives it power? Because the government that rules through armies will be brought to their knees by a baby. And they'll be on his shoulders. And through peace, he will destroy the empire by demonstrating a new way to be human, a way of generosity, a way of servanthood, of love in the midst of a world that normally we just look out for ourselves. The message of Christmas is that the war is over if you want it. You know, I know there are people who hate everything that we represent, the church, who hate everything the church represents. I know that. There will always be people who hate the church. But Jesus says we love those people. We don't argue with them. We love them. I know there are people who actually believe that writing an X instead of Christ means that they've X'd Jesus out of Christmas. But let me break it to you. You can make it an X. You can make it an A. You can make it a Z. You can make it a B or a G or an L or an S. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change him. Jesus is still there with his upside down message and his arms wide open. And when they need him the most, he will be there. And if you can work now in your life, this is why this matters, to not burn every single bridge that exists between you and people who don't follow Jesus yet, then you will be able to be there for them when that day comes and they need you. In the same way that Jesus is the icon the image of the invisible God, in the same way that the incarnation was God making known to us in the ultimate way how much he loves us, the church, you and I, have an opportunity every day, but even more this time of year, to incarnate the love of Jesus, to bring it to life, to make it real here on earth, to be the icon, the image of the God who loved the world so much that he gave his son. We get to be that image that the world doesn't even know they're looking for. The world, we get to be it to a world that has terribly misunderstood God because he's been terribly misrepresented for a long time. They've even tried to eliminate him from culture. But in the midst of that, we get to model generosity, radical generosity. We get to model unconditional love. We get to model compassion and empathy and mercy. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you are the light of the world. You are the very vessel in which he wants to shine through to illuminate the darkest places this Christmas season. I want to close with this. Don and I have a friend. We have a lot of friends. We're very popular people. I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm kidding. We're not very popular. But Don and I have a friend who lives in Los Angeles. We used to live there. And uh, he, he's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, In fact, he tells jokes all the time about how we are. One of his dreams is to hear me curse. He really wants me to say like a bad word in front of him. That's that's his dream. Every time he sees me, he's like, please, will you say the F word? Will you just say this? I'm like, I'm not going to do that. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe, you know. (laughs) But we always got along with him because he's kind and he, he loves people and we connected through music, which is his industry, and we're both very passionate about. But he's an atheist, a total atheist, the best kind of atheist. Every Christian needs to have some friends who are atheists. Life should never be just an echo chamber where you only talk to people who just repeat back to you all the same things that you already, that you already are saying. And This is where a lot of Christians ultimately find themselves. Only talking to people just like them who believe all the same things as them. You might even have the same kind of car as them. Like we're just the same people that are clung to each other and drawn to each other. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I'll tell you, her and I could probably write a book of sermon illustrations from conversations with this man. And it's helped me so much to see in a lot of ways what, what people see when they see the church. What, what people who are not a part of our community think of us when they think about our community. And it's, it's really important to understand that if you're ever going to reach that community, what, how do they see us? What are they seeing when they look in? So I just really want to emphasize this to you. This dude is not a Jesus follower. He does not believe in Jesus. He does not believe in the church. He does not believe in the mission. In fact, he's very critical of it. But last week, he met a young man 21-year-old single dad who's broke, he's being evicted, 
And out of desperation, he just started taking whatever job he could do, started getting in over his head, got into some trouble. Just lost, trying to figure out where to go, what to do. Nowhere to turn. Then he meets my friend who has everything. Doesn't live in the same place, but they, they met. He has everything. He has a heart that becomes filled with compassion for this man. But he has no clue what to do with it. So my friend gets a hold of Don and I. Our friend gets a hold of us. And he said, I want to help this young man. I don't know how. So he asked me if there are any churches in the city that the man lives in that we knew of who could help. I can't emphasize to you the level of shock that I experienced when I received this message. And honestly, the level of hope. He said that he was personally going to send a bunch of Christmas presents to the guy to give his daughter a Christmas. But beyond that, he wasn't sure what to do. We told him that we could send some presents as well. We're, we have quite a few of them. And if we, and we'll reach out to anybody in that city. We don't know anybody there, but we'll at least make some calls and see what we can do. And we'll see. Now, there are a few takeaways from that conversation that I want to share with you. First of all, Christmas is powerful. Compassion is powerful. You meet someone, right? And you know that it's cold outside. And you know that nobody should sleep outside, especially when there's a kid involved. You know, when we were in New York City, we did this project once where um, there's 55,000 homeless people in, in New York City and they sleep outside, a lot of them in the winter. And um, so we had a whole team of us to spend 55 hours just kind of putting ourselves in their shoes. So for 55 hours, we just lived on the streets with, with nothing. Um, we weren't trying to pretend, pretend like we were homeless. We were just trying to get the experience. So one night we stayed in the, on the street and one night we stayed in the shelter. It was right before Christmas. It was freezing. It snowed. It was the real experience. And... Um, we spent that first night on the street. And the hardest thing for us was when we saw people with kids. Children who, after these 55 hours, would still be outside. See, we even took Fiona with us. She was like, she was three months old. And Don went out with her. So we, we took her with us for a good portion of it. But we knew we could go home after this thing was over. They couldn't. And they'd either be outside or they'd still be in the shelter. During that time, we actually went to one shelter and we threw a Christmas party for a group of homeless, teenage, single mothers. Which really is an awful lot like Mary when you think about it. And I'll tell you this. If you give these young ladies 10 minutes of your attention and you just listen to them for just a few minutes. The only thing you're going to care about in that moment is helping their world to become a better place. You're not going to be concerned with the things that they've done that have led them to where they are. Those things don't matter when you're actually face to face with someone whose reality is life on the streets with a baby. For some of them, they have family living in houses five blocks away but yet they can't go home. And when you see that kind of need and you see that kind of injustice, something stirs your heart. Something in there starts to act the way that Jesus would act, even if you don't call it that. And I think that's what happened to my friend, our friend this, this week. And this is the second takeaway, and this blew my mind. When the atheist who makes fun of Jesus knows that there's a need that's bigger than he is, where does he turn? The one institution that though may at times seem crazy and broken and flawed and maybe a little bit out of our minds is also the one constant that when things get tough and there doesn't seem to be anywhere else to turn, even the people who believe the least see the most hope in the thing that they don't even believe in. Please hear that. In a world that really truly feels hopeless, even people who don't believe in Jesus see hope in what he represents. At least in those moments. And this is where I'm going with that. And this is why I feel like we often choose the wrong battles. Christmas is a time of generosity. 
because generosity is the greatest reflection we can have of Jesus. It's the greatest reflection of the gospel. To get angry when someone replaces Christ with an X, while at the same time, that person, out of maybe obligation or out of feeling or desire, they happen to also be giving more to charity or doing more for their own children or more for the poor than any other time. Right? We get mad about an ex, we're missing it. If her and I would have been mad about the times that he criticized our faith and mocked us, but yet he was still our friend, we could have easily been like, don't talk to us that way. But no, we just were community with him. But Christmas brings out the Jesus in people who don't even follow him. And that gives me a lot of hope. Because that is the power of the incarnation. God doesn't want us to push away people who are already far from him. God wants us to be his representatives in demonstrating that he loves them even when they don't believe in him. You and I have a mission. We're here for a reason. We are on a mission. And we're never going to accomplish it if we think that people are our enemy. We are in a battle to love. We're in a battle to love. I mean, if you, if you believe the cross, if you believe the gospel, then you know that the war has been over since Jesus finished it on the cross. Son, for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that through a baby there was a world change that we can't undo, that we can't take back, that we can't even really reject. It's just ours, wholeness. God, thank you for the peace, that, the potential of peace that comes with Christmas, this season, this holiday. God, I pray that you would just infuse our lives, our minds, our thoughts, invoke the feeling of love and peace in our homes, in our families, extended and near. God, give us wisdom. Give us hope for peace. And how to be part of that in your world, God, that you created with the intention of wholeness. We love you, God. We love you, Jesus. There's a fight, there's a war, there's a battle. And so often, we just feel like we have to be part of it and we get on the wrong side of the battle. And I don't really necessarily think anybody in this room does that. Um, I've encountered people that do, we've had friends that do. And we fight the pagan roots or whatever thing we grab a hold of that's just not God. And we fight for it really hard. And I read this thing recently. I can't even tell you who it is. I'm going to give you two other quotes, though. And I'll tell you who they are. But I read this thing recently about fighting the darkness, the evil things of the world, and the adversary, the enemy. And so often we focus on the enemy. But really, truly, the way out is the light. When we focus on the light, I mean, it's in the Bible, Martin Luther King Jr. said it. I mean, the only way to make darkness flee is the light. And light doesn't flee with darkness. God is the light, and we have to focus on the light. We have to bring in the light, and that's who you are to the world. Um, James Barr, when we're talking about these pagan roots, he says this. He's an Old Testament theologian that writes a lot of books. Um, I read his book once. And this is what he says. Although these influences borrowings and adoptions from other religions. I'm telling you a lot of the Old Testament rituals that were really important to Israel are pagan rituals adopted. I mean, sacrifice, guys. They started sacrificing their children and then we moved on from children to animals and now we have Jesus. 
and now we sacrifice our own lives. They certainly existed. They came to be less than, less important to this core. Once accepted within the Bible and its traditions, they came to be expressions of that central Hebrew faith and ceased to have the associations with, they, which, with which they had had in their, entire, in their earlier and foreign context. He truly makes literally everything new. Pagan traditions, he makes the most valuable thing that we have to be able to express our love for God. Um, Thomas Oden, he's an editor of this thing. I don't know if he wrote it, but it's so him. Um, he wrote this, this love of God, even love, guys, even love. He's talking about Job here, though it's born in fear. Our friend who his love for people is born out of fear of this world is so broken and I don't want to see it be broken anymore. It's transformed by growing its affection. It becomes affection. And here's the beautiful thing. This is the other thing he says. It's through the love of God that the love of our neighbor is born. So our friend who doesn't love God and can love his neighbor, that's the love of God, guys. Though he doesn't claim it or say, God, teach me to love people, it is imprinted on your being. You can't not love with the love of God. Love is God. God is love. You can't get away with it. And this love of our neighbor, this is where the love of God is fostered. Guys, justice is when love meets us in the midst of our suffering. The earth is so full of broken suffering, this world, this city, this room is so full of suffering. But when we can let love meet us there, and meet each other with love there. We bring God into the world, and we bring Jesus back into Christmas. Maybe people are denying that God's there, but you, you can't remove God from love. You can't do it. It's not physiologically possible. They're integrated, they're one. I had a friend growing up when I was a small child, um, her backyard was my backyard, so we were neighbor friends that played together all the time. And I don't think that my dad would consider her his friend, but I bet your bottom dollar that he knows her name and he knows things about her because she was my best friend. And I brought her around. And I talked about her. And I had a love for her. I'm telling you, people, know God. Because he's close to you. Because you're close to him. And that love for him is fostered when you love your neighbor. It's this cycle. Love people. And when you love people, all of a sudden you start to really love God. And when you love God, the outpouring of that is you love people. And then it's this cycle that people are in, and they don't even know it. It's like, ha ha, joke's on you, happy holiday. It is a holy day. And you, by saying happy holidays, just loved me with the love of God because you can't love without him. We don't need to rub it in people's faces, guys. We don't need to fight that battle. The battle we need to fight is to love. And the war is over. It's a war and you'll fight it every single day. But the war between love in or out of you, it's over. Take it in. Take his love on and love people.